What I wanted to talk about tonight was continuing with the meditation thing, which we started over the other night, and we'll probably branch into some other things that, if we have time, I want to mention to you. I want to start off with a root practice, which is common to all traditions, emphasised as much in Tibetan tradition as other, as I say, other traditions, and this is something known as the Brahma Zahara. And there are four of them. Some of you may know these anyway. The first is the practice of loving kindness, which is metta for those who don't know, and I'm sure you all do know. The second is the practice of compassion, which is karuna. Then there's sympathetic joy, uh, something I don't see a lot of around generally. <laughs> Um, which is mudita, and then there's equanimity, also something which is rather rare in our day and age, upeka. These are all Pali terms for these states. These are the bases of meditation, really, the bases of practice. Loving kindness. Well, it speaks for itself in many ways. In Tibetan Buddhism, this usually comes personified. I don't know if you've seen the statues of Tara. She's female. And there's usually a white one and a green one. <coughs> the white one tends to be more active than the green one. Um, but there's a lovely story, actually. Can I tell you the story? There's the, um, there's the Bodhisattva of Compassion. In Tibetan, it's known as Chenrezig. But in... Sanskrit is known as Avalokiteshvara, which means the Lord who looks down. And what he's looking down for is suffering, dukkha, in order to help. And sometimes, actually, some of the statues that you find in in the Tibetan tradition uh, are huge, and some of them are known as the thousand-armed Chenrezi. Each of them, each of the thousand arms on these statues has a little eye in the palm of the hand, which is looking for pain, suffering, in order to alleviate it. He also has, he also has a number of heads facing in all different directions to be able to perceive it as well. But apparently, um, according to one of the legends, which is a nice and lovely story, a nice mythology, is that um, Avalokiteshvara was so moved by the sheer quantity of suffering that he perceived around that he cried two little tears and one gave birth to green Tara and the other one gave birth to white Tara who became loving kindness and acted in the world and I think that's a nice story in other words loving kindness is born out of compassion with the emphasis on love here <coughs> and this is a love of course that's not sensuality, sexuality, it's not possessive. In fact, it's the very opposite. It's destructive of possession altogether. It's that which genuinely comes into relationship with the other rather than the simple possessive relationship that we see enacted (coughs) in normal daily life in terms of possesses human, sexual, sensual relations. This is the love that is prepared to 
look after, care for, but then let go, rather than the clinging to. So it's quite, quite different. Now, in the practice of loving-kindness, and again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, but those are not, and just to familiarise you with it, it's a very lovely meditation. We haven't had time to do it this week because we've been concentrating primarily just purely on these mind-mudra practices. But of course, the, the meditation runs basically in the form of initially love and kindness has to start at home. So you have to learn to love and care for yourself first of all. And um, something Westerners I think find quite quite a problem um, is actually you know learning to care for themselves in a genuine way. And when we talk about caring, we don't mean a pure egotism. We mean a genuine caring, a genuine looking, nurturing oneself. So generally this is done through visualisation and meditation usually runs in the form of visualising oneself and generating feelings of kindness and compassion towards your visualised self. Now, often when I talk to meditators about this, this is one they usually find the most difficult. They usually find visualising an enemy or somebody they dislike easier than trying to visualise themselves and generate good feelings towards themselves. So it's so quite a problem we Westerners have, I think, in, in generally not harbouring good feelings about ourselves. But on the other hand, we grip tightly to the notion of ourself and our ego and operate from that. And so initially one has to learn to without being sentimental about it, love oneself. That also means giving oneself the sort of thing I've talked about over the last few nights. Permission to fail. That learning process that I mentioned last night of learning to, well, learning by the mistakes, learning through the failures, not carrying the dreadful, dreadful thing called, around with us called guilt but learning to let go. Sometimes, if the action has been bad enough, perhaps to feel shame. But shame, as I mentioned, was instantaneous. And in the next moment, the striving can be better, the motivation can be better, but we still, because we are human, have this propensity to fail, and so we should give ourselves the permission to fail on occasion. That doesn't mean being lazy, that doesn't mean being sloppy, but just doing the best we can. And that's all we can do, is do the best we can. We might like to be superhuman, but at this moment in time we're not. We have to operate from where we are, with our failures, with our foibles, and move forward from there, from the place where we actually stand in the world, not from some idealisation or some expectation of what we can do. This is learning to love oneself, learning to love the position from which you operate, your position, your sense of being in the world, without, as I say, generating an ideal image of what you would like to be. Generally what happens when we, ge- when we generate this ideal image of ourselves is we can only but fail and come crashing down in the worst possible sense. So loving kindness starts at home. Mm. 
people uh, have as much difficulty loving themselves as uh, Italian people or uh, Canadian people. Um, because this is so, um, and you know, so, uh, what kind of answer I'd be looking for here, but it, it, it somehow tied into Christianity. Mm. Is, is that, I mean, is this some sort of blanket that's been thrown over the West that, uh, that we can't love ourselves because of some kind of um, Christian? Without wanting to point the finger too strongly at Christianity, I think it has been responsible for a lot of the ways that we feel about ourselves. I mean, it's kind of a conditioned historical memory. So what part of what, what is it about Christianity? Well, I mean, we do, if, if you come from Christian backgrounds and you've any time been susceptible to the, to the rhetoric of Christianity, then, of course, then, what shall we just say, original sin. I mean, that covers, a, you know, basically there's a problem with you being in the world to start with, which is you start off with a great guilt complex, um, which is the notion of original sin. I mean, from there I only perceive that things can get worse. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the notion of original sin. <laughs> um, and you're looking for a redeemer as well to redeem that for you. So... You know, whether we adhere and subscribe to these Christian doctrines or not, or the Christian Judaic doctrines, I should imagine most of us don't anymore. But it's part of our collective historical memory. Uh, it's part of our conditioning. It's part of education, you know, right from early on. I mean, I can remember as a child being saying, well, if, if I don't see you doing something wrong, God will. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of makes you feel guilty in your own eyes, and that's you know, part of what happens. Our societies operate on a similar basis of, um, I don't know, the kind of omniscient eye which is watching you. <laughs> Big brother. Big brother, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of mythologies in terms of that. But I don't know if you, don't need to have them in the States, but we certainly have over here these speed trap cameras. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, they don't actually have anything in them, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know this? They cost so much money these speed track cameras, and they come something like £50,000 a piece, the actual cameras. But what they do is keep the boxes mostly empty and shift them around occasionally. But what happens is everybody drives as if <laughs> these boxes are full of the cameras. You know, and that's a wonderful metaphor for our society. Now, we're all acting as if somebody's watching us. <laughs> Now, I don't want to get into the kind of paranoid conspiracy theory. <laughs> but, in a way, that's, the way, that's how our societies operate. Um, you know, if those interested, and there's, a, there's a French philosopher called Michel Foucault who dramatizes this very, very well in talking about how the idea of the prison has moved outside of the prison. And that's all based on the kind of omniscient eye as well, the prison. In, I don't know, the penitentiary, where you have the central watchtower and all the open cells around it, and nobody can see that anybody's in the watchtower, so everybody has to act as if there is somebody there. Again, it's the idea of being seen, feeling guilty under the eye of the other, that we can so often do. And that makes us, you know, it makes us survey ourselves in a particular way. 
And that's really what I'm talking about, this kind of self-surveillance, but in the most negative sense of the word. A, a censoring. Uh, a censuring, as well, um, of our being in the world. And there's a wonderful title of a book by a Romanian author called um, Siran, which is called The Problem with Being Born. <laughs> and one of the things he you know, says at right at the beginning is, is a lot of Westerners feel guilty just for being born, <laughs> let alone anything else. Now, I don't want to dwell on about this, but if there is this kind of legacy around for us, and I believe there is, to greater or lesser extent, it depends on the individual. I mean, what I'm giving is blanket scenarios here. So we all have to look at our own conditioning in this way. What is it that makes it so difficult for us, you know, difficult or not so difficult, depending on the degrees, for us to actually care for ourselves in a wholesome way? And I don't mean unwholesomely, like this kind of megalomania, concentration on oneself, this narcissism, that we also see rampant in the world. I mean, human beings are kind of some of the most narcissistic creatures around as well. Um, how can we learn to care for ourselves in this wholesome way, not in this narcissistic way? It's a lovely, lovely piece of the, the beginning of a, a book by um, Lacan, the French psychoanalyst, where he makes a joke about human beings because he talks about something called the mirror stage. Have you ever heard of this? The mirror stage in human development? Now, it's really funny because he says that what happens with, with um, human beings is they get to see mirrors at a very early stage in their life and they get entrapped by what they see in the mirror. Um, and this can be the mirroring behaviour of your parents, you know, kind of looking after you all the time, caring for you in a very kind of, so you feel, I'm the centre of the world. And what he says is, have you ever noticed it with apes? What happens with apes? An ape picks up a mirror, looks into the mirror and goes... <laughs> <laughs> round the back of it, then loses all interest. <laughs> the human being picks up the mirror and stares lovingly. <laughs> into their own reflection often. Um, I'm joking about this, but that's what can happen. It's that kind of unwholesome captivation by the image of yourself. That's the ego, actually. And that's what he's trying to say here. And has very great resonance in Buddhism. That actually the mirror image of yourself is your ego. This kind of captive picture that you have of yourself. So the question for us becomes, in terms of loving-kindness, this first stage of loving-kindness, how do we come into a wholesome, loving relationship with ourselves without it becoming the narcissistic relationship that it so often becomes? Remember I gave you a certain phrase last night for the ego, you know, nadia, which means the I as king, you know, the, the king of the universe here. So how we come into that relationship. Now, again, this has to be one of kindness. A relationship of kindness. A relationship also of forgiveness at times. Forgive yourself for failing. Forgive yourself the propensities you have in the world for making mistakes. We can be very cruel, very hard on ourselves a lot of the time. And the problem with that, of course, is if we are cruel and hard with ourselves, we usually apply that to others as well. 
and use that as the standard. And I've often heard in people's conversations, about, you know, I'm being no harder on myself on you than I am on myself. <laughs> Anybody heard that one? There? Which means that you know, if you're incredibly, incredibly self-critical in the most destructive, negative way, you're pretty well going to be that with other people in the world. So you, you know, you're not one for keeping a good sense of destructiveness inwards. You like to spread it around a bit uh, and put it out into the world. So it's very, very important that the first relationship we have in terms of loving kindness is to care and love ourselves in this non-egotistical, non-clinging way, a way which in a sense holds us in a caring relationship, in a caring space. Now, of course, when we move on in the meditation, I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but then we move on to visualising, well, it varies from tradition to tradition, but usually somebody you have some animosity towards, somebody you dislike, somebody you're not very happy with, might be from minor irritation to absolute hatred with. So you develop a relationship again. And one of the phrases, the stock phrases that you in this, and it's a very important phrase, is the phrase, may they be well and may they be happy. May they find peace and contentment and freedom from dukkha, freedom from suffering. Now, of course, that can end up being quite an intellectual exercise, but it's not meant to be. Again, it's meant to be a feeling from the heart, a movement from the heart. So equally, when we do this for ourselves and we visualise ourselves in this, it's May we be well, may we be happy. Not kind of an intellectual, well, may they be well and may they be happy. But really, really deeply from the centre of our being. It's kind of yeah, almost visualising like a picture of Yeah, a picture of yourself, a picture of your face, a picture of the whole body if you want to. It depends on how you want to do it. There's no real absolute prescriptions about this. The same with your enemy, irritant person you don't get on with. To visualise them either facially or complete body-wise doesn't matter. It's not really important. The idea is you get a feeling about this person and you generate these good, kindly feelings towards them. And it's difficult for the two sides. Yeah, it's the same for the sense. use loving-kindness as well as a basic meditational practice. Then, of course, you visualise somebody who you love, perhaps, naturally, already, might be in relationship with, somebody you certainly care about a lot, and you visualise them, and you develop the same kinds of feelings again. Obviously not so difficult, is it, when you're already in relationship and caring for somebody. Then there's a much more grey area, a very difficult one. And, as you've probably gathered by now, this touches the three aspects of Buddhist psychology I touched on right at the very beginning of the retreat. And this is trying to visualise somebody you don't usually take much notice of. Somebody who you feel what the general phrase is usually indifferent towards. Somebody you might encounter every day who is merely functional for you. Might be somebody, I don't know, in a shop 
where you buy your newspaper or whatever you buy every day and you see them, you don't have any feelings either way. You neither like them particularly or dislike them. Now here's the, the crux of it. Because once you've done all of this, once you've visualized all these three people, all these three individuals, trying to generate the same feelings, including yourself, so there's four all together. Let's have a snapshot photograph. All together. <laughs> you know, you, the person you dislike, the person you like, and the person you feel kind of indifferent towards. Now comes the crux, because it, can you generate feelings towards them equally? So it's the equalisation of the feeling of kindness and love. And the phrase goes something like, may they all be well and happy equally. May they all find freedom from suffering equally. So there's no distinction between. So loving kindness shows no distinction between any of its objects. Now, the three aspects, of course, it's dealing with in terms of our psychology is our simple propensity upon which all of the rest of the great edifice of Buddhist psychological thought is built, which is the basic feeling tone of every encounter that we have in the world is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That's the feeling tone from which everything else comes. All the other emotions are built on that basic vedana, that basic feeling, which comes upon contact. So importantly, it's the idea that we develop, despite this feeling tone, an equalisation of care and kindness and love towards those who we visualise, to those who we actually encounter. And again, bear in mind, um, in fact I should say this, I think that all meditative situations are artificial. All of them are feigning only. So we sit there and we might do this visualisation, we might try to generate loving kindness, but don't let it stay on the cushion. <laughs> don't let it just be there left on the cushion. Yeah, that's where your loving kindness resides. <laughs> okay. Be courageous and take it outside occasionally <laughs> into the world um, because that's where it has meaning again, like any of these, these things. Any of the Brahma Zaharas only has sense outside in the world. Interestingly, of course, in um, the iconography of loving kindness within the Tibetan tradition, the iconography of Tara, who really comes into Tibet with the figure of Atisha at about the 11th century and from then on becomes kind of the Virgin Mary of, of the whole of Tibetan society. If there's any practice that the average Tibetan is involved with, it's practices to do with Tara. In fact, most Tibetan households, if they know no other piece of liturgy, it's usually the piece that goes with the development of loving kindness and the praise to what's known as the 21 Tara, the 21 different aspects of Tara, which represent 21 different psychological aspects of loving kindness in the world. But the iconography itself is very indicative because it shows readiness, readiness to offer kindness and care and consideration in the world. Because she sits on the usual lotus throne, I don't know if you've seen these representations, but in Tibetan iconography they generally sit on a kind of lotus, idealised lotus throne with a moon disc. 
and she sits there with um, one foot in the half-lotus position, but the other foot uncrossed, you know, out, stretched out in front of her. And her right hand is in this gesture, which is a lovely gesture, because it's a gesture of the open-handedness. Not closed hand, not like the hand of violence, but a hand of kindness which is offered to others. And again, she often is depicted with a, a, an eye in the hand, looking to dispense loving kindness in the world. Again, it's a question, I think, for us, rather than anything at this stage that we can perhaps want to adopt readily. But the question becomes, I think, for us, how often, how often do we actually look in the world to display the virtue of love, kindness in the world, with that sort of open-handedness? And it's a question for all of us. It's not it's not a kind of rhetorical question, I think it's a question, a very real question of how we dispense that in the world. Because we see hatred and aggression, and we see the results of hatred and aggression in the world continuously. The world is full of it. I don't know if any era is any worse than others. There's always the kind of the myth of the golden era of looking back into the past. The wonderful comment by the novelist uh, Lawrence Durrell, who says, the only thing that we learn from history is we don't learn anything from history. <laughs> Which, of course, is this perpetuation of violence and wars and ethnicity and all the kinds of problems we see enacted again and again and again. It just seems to vary from continent to continent, that's all, in many ways. But the antidote to all of that, of course, is this kindness. Many of you might have heard it, but Dalai Lama, once when asked the question about what his religion was, he says, my religion is kindness. It's not Buddhism. Yeah, it's simply kindness in the world. So that's really where, if you like, if you want to call yourself a Buddhist, or even engaging with Buddhist ideas and nothing else, then that's where it really manifests in your being in the world in terms of how kindly you can be in the world. Now, Kindness itself, and you'll see this with the others, and perhaps I won't go into so much detail with some of the others, but kindness in the world is active. It's not simply passive. It's not a passive kind of, kind of I feel kind, with a smile on your face. <laughs> you know, it's a kindness that gets out and does something. <laughs> now, this can be the hand that, I don't know, the arm that outstretches to comfort somebody who's upset. It can be the concern and kindness with which you listen to somebody, or just your basic dealings in the world, which lose their abrasive edge, their irritation. Because obviously the absolute antidote to hatred are these two things, kindness, and of course the second to the Brahman of Ahara is compassion itself. They're the absolute antidote to the hatred and aversion in the world. So when we talk about the three poisons, the three roots, what I term the unholy trinity, that uh, keeps the whole of Sangsara going, then the perfect antidote to the greed in the world is the generosity I spoke about in terms of the paramatas, of the hatred, then it's compassion and kindness in the world. Yeah. 
Hatred only generates more hatred. Aggression and violence only generate more violence and aggression. At some point it has to stop and the only stopping occurs with compassion and kindness. And of course the very opposite to the root of delusion or ignorance is the development of understanding and insight which of course will then underpin the other. So hence we move on to compassion. And compassion itself is, if anything, as I said the other night, one of the major roots certainly in Tibetan Buddhism. When we think of you know, when we think of Tibetan Buddhism, perhaps one of the automatic things we think of is wisdom and compassion. In fact, I think it was about 1992, they had an exhibition of Tibetan art in London, the Royal Academy in London, and the actual exhibition was called Images of Wisdom and Compassion. Because all of the iconography, all of those images, you know, even the, you know, the you know, 34-armed, 16-leg stomping monsters, uh, who I said were rather cuddly, um, they are images of either wisdom or compassion. You know, they, they just look rather fearful on the outside of all the got soft center. <laughs> Ultimately. So, compassion itself is almost synonymous with Tibetan Buddhism. Interestingly, of course, and I don't want to get into too much of this, but of course the Dalai Lama himself. You know, here we have the, well, up until 1959, the head of a country who was considered to be the personification of compassion. You know, he was considered to be Avalokiteshvara, or an emanation of Avalokiteshvara. Now we can just think of the, perhaps the, the difference between that and our elected heads of state. Yeah. <laughs> There's a big difference. I mean, I, I struggle sometimes to see images of wisdom and compassion in terms of our heads of state, often. Images of mendacity, perhaps. <laughs> Um, but not images of wisdom and compassion in most cases. And that's not to say they're bad people, but to say that, of course, the very games that are played often draw them into something which isn't and can never be really wise or compassionate. So compassion, when talked about in the tradition, again, is the root virtue. Again, this is you know, being built on loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is there, is important, but compassion goes even further. Compassion becomes all-encompassing. In fact, they talk about Mahakaruna, the great compassion that you're supposed to have. And that comes with the arrival in Mahayana traditions of Bodhicitta, the very thing I talked about the other night. But only with the arrival of Bodhicitta does one get Mahakaruna, the great compassion. Now, the great compassion is that you're prepared to undertake that long journey to Buddhahood for the sake of all beings, to really, really help. So, compassion is a really, really helping. That's the main facet of what compassion is about. Again, it's not a gooey feeling. It's not the gooeyness sitting on the cushion again. It's the getting out and desiring to help. But of course, compassion within 
these positions always have to be underpinned by panya, prajna, wisdom, which is a common translation, what I call insight or understanding, because otherwise it's misdirected much of the time. But the main facet of compassion is it acts. And it acts almost spontaneously. When you're genuinely compassionate, you cannot help but act in the world. You can't sit back and do nothing. Now again, that's exemplified in the iconography of these figures, which are just looking around to act, not to sit and generate nice feelings for themselves, but to actually move into the world and do something, to make a difference. And that's what compassion does. It makes the difference in the world. So for you and I to generate that, to generate that has to be out of the desire to wish to help directly. To help beings directly doesn't matter whether they're human beings or non-human beings. It really does not matter. But just to get out there and do something. Now that arises, as I say, spontaneously. It arises out of our sense of being. To kind of perhaps twist a, a quotation I might have given you the other night. I think, in fact, I did. I think it was that second night we were doing, you know, I was talking to you, is really to be ourselves, to really, really be ourselves is to be compassionate. Now, I have to take that as an assertion at this stage. I don't have enough time to really delve too much into it. But in other words, to really open is to be compassionate. And to be open rather than closed is perhaps what we're working towards in the meditative process, in the process of cultivation, of opening ourselves to the world. Remember, perhaps to the beginning I think the process that most of us engage in is closing down, closing down, the older you get, the more closed down you often become. To close down completely is called death. Now, this is movement into life, no matter how old you are. Age has nothing to do with it. So compassion is the movement into life the movement into engagement without the closing down. It's the movement into the open, not the movement into the safe and the familiar. So compassion isn't calculating. It doesn't calculate what's in it for me, <laughs> which is the way that most of our enactments or enactments in the world are generated. It's the kind of what's in it for me. Also, and I think I've said this already, but again I'll reiterate it, it's not a question of necessarily even thinking about, having this conscious feeling of, ooh, I'm being compassionate. Because remember I said, if you're doing that, you've distanced yourself. Compassion is an object. You haven't attained it. Compassion is seen in the action itself. It's almost, and I almost define what um, I'm going to say now, is it's almost as if genuine compassion cannot be talked about. It can be observed. It can be seen. You can 
see yourself engaged in the doing of it, but you cannot talk about it. Because to talk about it is to take it in as an object. So, would you say that a truly would not be aware that they're being dispassionate? They would just be aware that they were acting. That, I think, is what's meant by the Mahakaruna. It's a movement, you know, compassion often is the, the feeling that if I'm generating some kind of feeling towards the other, whereas the genuine compassion is spoke about, particularly as it's reiterated again and again in Mahayana Sutra, is you see beings acting, doing things. Nothing else. Not sitting back, feeling compassionate, and then out of the feeling of compassion, acting, but just acting. And again, one I think the great virtues of Buddhist practice, the one that you know, never ceases to astonish me in many ways about Buddhist practice, is Buddhism doesn't build on something that isn't there already. And it's there for most of us. We just do not exhibit it most of the time. On the odd occasion, we will. You know, you'll find yourself in the act of doing something, so only later you think, perhaps I was a little bit compassionate there. <laughs> But it's in kind of retrospect. You don't notice it at the time because you're engaged in the doing of it. It's also, when I talk about you know, some of the things that we do in meditation, the generation of stillness and calm, that in itself is unusual for us, but not absolutely unknown. Because you can think about possibly your favourite pastime, the thing that you really love doing, how you get engaged with it. And then you have it. You have that thought. You have that calmness. Might be, I don't know, painting or playing a musical instrument or whatever. And the moment you're engaged in it, your attention is fully there. Thought processes are often not there either. Reading. Doing any of these things which require concentration they often create calmness. Yet we think you know, calmness is this rare event. And it is. It is a rare event. But it's not an unknown event. It's just that it happens to us all too infrequently. And I think that's one of the great virtues of Buddhist practice, is that it's not trying to import something from outside we've never tasted. It's just that we don't taste it very often. <coughs> so it's building on what we already have, rather than what we never have. Yeah, so within us all is the capacity, in other words. Now, in some traditions, they'd want to call it Buddha nature. Perhaps I, won't, I don't want to go that far in this stage, because that gets us into a whole host of other arguments. But it's the, this capacity, this potential that we all have, which we exhibit from time to time, might be occasionally in our life. But we have it, and we do exhibit it. That can be developed can be brought into flowering, but it needs nurturing. Um, but one can be aware of not being compassionate mm. and feel shame. Yeah. You can have that as a daily experience. Mm-hmm. Is that shame, um, is that um, useful in the arousing of compassion? Mm. In fact, it's very important, in Buddhism, um, 
that idea is very important. Actually, the idea of shame is, is a word in Pali called hiri, in Pali, which I actually translate also as self-respect. Shame is also to do with self-respect. In other words, it's a feeling that you could do better, not in somebody else's eyes, but in your own eyes, that you can do better than that. Now, interestingly, in the whole Abhidharma system, I mean, the Buddha places such importance on this idea of shame, and he actually couples it with something else, but he calls it Lokapala, which in Pali means a guardian of the world. So actually, your shame is part of the guardian of the, you know, your guardianship of the world, because it stops you from doing things that are frightening, horrific, that curbed tendencies that we have. Now, the only way I can contrast that is, is that, that Interestingly, people who do commit horrific deeds actually have that lack of shame. Um, I was very struck once by, I mean, I don't know if anybody's read it, but there's a book by somebody called Hannah Arendt, um, who interviewed Eichmann in Jerusalem. It's a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. And she interviewed him and said that she was struck not by, and remember this was the man who was responsible for transporting Jewish people all over Europe to the various concentration camps. That she was struck not what by she called the monstrousness of evil, but by the banality of evil. But actually what he had was an incapacity to think, to empathise with others. So rather than possessing some thing called evil, he actually had a lack in his being. He didn't have any shame at all about what he had done. So he has Pardon? He might still possess potential. It didn't particularly manifest itself. That's <laughs> all one can say. <laughs> if he did. Um, but I think the interesting thing is that, that we can see evil not as a, as a monstrousness, a thing somebody possesses, but as a lack. And within Buddhist terminology, this would be the lack of something like self-respect or shame. Shame I don't want to go into much into this, but um, a very famous commentator on the Abhidharma called Buddhaghosa actually says, um, makes an analogy and says that shame is a bit like a sort of iron ball smeared with excrement that you know you don't want to touch simply because you know you'll be contaminated by it. In other words, you know there's something defiling about that action, for example. So it's a judgment that one's made. You wouldn't want to touch it, not because of what others might say about it, because it would defile you in your own eyes to engage in that kind of action. Now my experience of it is um, that selfishness um, selfishness comes first mm. and that um, that causes me to miss the opportunity for compassion. Mm. And so the shame is the shame of um, the selfishness. Yeah. The speed of that. Mm-hmm. And then the opportunity is gone. Yeah. That's exactly the process. That's exactly a very good description of the process. You feel ashamed because of your selfishness, because you know you can do better. You know that you can be otherwise. Yeah, the shame in a sense tells you something, doesn't it? Because it says to you that perhaps the next time the opportunity comes along, I can 
you with the right motivation act differently. But if you fail again, then you perhaps feel shame again, ashamed of yourself. And it goes on, it's a learning process. You know, we're learning in a way to be compassionate. We're learning for selflessness. Actions deriving out of selflessness rather than selfishness to be naturalised within us. Um, at this moment in time, they feel unnatural because we don't engage in them very often. And that's why they feel unnatural. Couldn't the shame lead on to self-hatred? How do you stop that from happening? Going back into your guilt trip. Going back into the guilt trip, but I think it can with Westerners. I do honestly think that. In shame cultures, um, such as the ones I mentioned, the ones of you know, Buddhist cultures, that doesn't tend to happen so much. It doesn't say it's impossible that it will happen, but it doesn't tend to happen so much because shame is this instantaneous thing that you drop afterwards. I've seen this in Tibetan society. Monks get found out for doing all kinds of stuff, but they shouldn't. They go, oh, it can't be sorry. Things like that. <laughs> and then it's gone. <laughs> and they're back laughing and smiling and joking. Again. Um, they're just, you know, just ashamed of getting caught out. Um, and they might continue to do it, but it doesn't ever seem to develop for some reason into the kind of you know, the self-loathing <laughs> that often we feel in the West. Now, I think that's because we solidify, reify these feelings. We make them part of us as if it is really, really something solid within us. So it's a business about holding it lightly. Light, shame is, is important and it's different from guilt in that it has a different feeling tone to it. It's held a lot more lightly than guilt, which kind of you carry around with you, really, forever and a day. In fact, you might do something in your, I don't know, teenagers, twenties, and you're still carrying it around with you in your centre. <laughs> because you've done it. Actually, most of our... Um, justice system works on that idea in some senses that that thing doesn't change that you've, you're still carrying it with you that's guilt that's what guilt is moving on now I'll open it up because we're coming to the end so you know, tomorrow we'll get a chance as well but I want you know, people to ask any questions not just associated with tonight's talk then I said the, the rarity in our world perhaps Sympathetic joy. <laughs> Medita. Well, yeah, it's sympathy. See, I mean, sympathetic joy means it's literally rejoicing in somebody else's good fortune. Yeah, there's not a lot of that going on around, I feel. It's actually rejoicing in others' good fortune. Why have they got that and I haven't? <laughs> I'm more deserving than they are. You know, all the kind of stuff that we tell ourselves. But sympathetic joy, again, is an opening up a sympathy, um, a resonance with somebody else's joyfulness, even if you haven't got it, whatever that might be. might be some quality, might be some thing, but to actually resonate in sympathy with them. It's a very important human quality of opening ourselves up to the others, because, you know, despite what Buddhism says, life isn't. You know, just sankara isn't just one untold misery after another. 
it does have a few joyful moments from occasion to occasion. Um, they might not last, and that's part of when it becomes dukkha, because we want it to last. So it isn't one alloyed veil of suffering, um, as we can often see it, but it's a mixture of things. But of course what happens is our joys turn into our sufferings because we want to hold on to them. Our happiness turns into its opposite because we try to cling to it desperately. Desperately. When we look at others and see, you know, perhaps I'm in a fairly dukkad state, <laughs> to use a kind of colloquialism, and the other isn't, can you generate feelings of joy towards them? Feel resonance with them? Can you be uplifted by the other? Generally what creeps in is resentment. I don't know if you've noticed that. Resentment about the fact that they feel better than you. They have more than you. All this sorts of stuff, and I won't go into it too much. But this again becomes a question. And remember, all the Brahmajaharas are not kind of thou musts. They're kind of questions. Ways of questioning our being in the world. Now when it says there is this Brahmajahara, this sublime abode, which is what it means, this sublime abode, how often do we dwell in a sublime abode? We don't, mostly. We prefer often through familiarity to be in some kind of hovel rather than a sublime abode. <laughs> but it's a hovel we know. <laughs> um, so, these are questions. They're ways of making you question your being in the world. And that's what's important about them. This idea of you putting you on the line in your moments when you encounter somebody who is joyful for whatever reason. For whatever reason. How do you respond? That's the question it's asking. What is your responsibility towards the other? Your ability to respond in any given situation. Can you respond with loving kindness? Can you respond with compassion? Can you respond with sympathetic joy? You really feel joyful for the fact that they have got what they've got. If they be that feeling or possessions or whatever it might be. And the last question that's posed to your being in terms of the sublime ways of being in the world is can you do that to all equally? Can you feel that equally for all beings? Now, when I say equally, this word upeka in Pali is translated as equanimity, but it also means equality too. So to have equanimity is to feel equal. Now, equal oneself, whether you have or you have not, with others. But for them all to be seen in your eyes equally, without preference, in terms of your loving kindness, in terms of your compassion, and in terms of your sympathetic joy. So as I say, it puts us on the line in our responsiveness in ordinary daily life. Sometimes we might exhibit some of this, sometimes not. But these are tasks for us, questions, modes of inquiry that open up possibilities 
for being which we glimpse occasionally. Not too often, but we glimpse occasionally. Sometimes what actually happens is, of course, these states come over us without knowing it, and that's when it's real. When you genuinely feel sympathetic joy for someone and feel it equally, I think it's a little bit more difficult, but when it genuinely comes over you, that is the real thing. When it spontaneously arises. Now, I'm going to finish in a second, because what this whole purpose of developing the practices in Mahamudra that we've been doing over the retreat for the week is aimed at doing, of course, is developing the subtlety of awareness, the place to dwell, where we can develop these ways of being in the world. In fact, they will arise spontaneously. That's the promissory note that's being held out, but it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of inquiry to do that. In fact, it demands everything from us. Whether one wants to call oneself a Buddhist or not, but this path that's opened up, this path of cultivation, is, and I've joked about it over the nights I've talked, it's not a hobby. It demands something of you totally. It demands your commitment. It doesn't mean that you can't fail, but it does demand that you recognise your failure and perhaps try to change in accordance with what you learn through those repeated failures. And they're repeated because it's samsara and we're running around in circles a lot of the time. But it's knowing how to break the circle. This word, to go back to the first night, samsara, means to go round in circles. It means literally that. I mean, despite all the kind of metaphysical overlays of it then talking about in terms of cycles of birth and rebirth and death and everything else, it means literally to be doing the same thing again and again and again and again. To be caught in the cycles which are driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. The way to break the cycles, not the only way, but one way, is through this tradition of the development of the Brahma Zaharas, of using those as ways of inquiry and ways to breaking the propensity to behave simply the same way. And if you've had that feeling of deja vu, it's because you've been there before, generally. So when we talk about rebirth, you can actually see it in terms of, yeah, I'm being reborn into all kinds of situations which some of them are pretty familiar to me. Pretty familiar. So the big, big question, this is my concluding remark really tonight, right? the big, big question is, can I break it? Can I break the chain? Can I develop the freedom and spontaneity, the calmness of mind, which would break that chain. Because the chain is bound by simple repetitions, by what's technically known as sankharas, formations, what Rilke described as the habits that moved in and didn't leave. So, this is time to ask your lodgers to leave.
Okay, I'll open up to any other questions that people might have for over the whole range of what we're talking about. Yeah. I've come about um, engagement and compassion in the world. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel we can a conflict or something between those that should be out in the world doing things or whether the greatest gift you can give the world is your own self-realisation. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of sit in a cave in the tree. <laughs> and actually not directly helping anybody. Right. But well, the question I would say is, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you, is is it an either or? On well, the moment, moment, never it seems like an either or. Mm. Yeah. I would actually question whether it is an either or. One can do both. Mm. One can almost live a perpetual retreat within the world if you bring that quality of mind that you develop in a kind of retreat situation into the world, into your actions. So that's important. It's not a, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, probably there's, there's one big point finger that could be pointed at the history of Buddhism that it didn't engage in the world a lot of the time. It talked about these wonderful things like wisdom and compassion and all the rest of it. Um, and the monks didn't really get outside the monasteries and do anything. That changed. It changed considerably. Um, and it's one of the things that's come about through interaction with other religious traditions. That there is those traditions of action within the world. Certainly within the Tibetan tradition, the Dalai Lama absolutely applauded this, that the monks now do things for other people. Thailand, of course, they run all kinds of programs. Um, from drug rehabilitation to all sorts of social welfare programs now in Thailand. So Buddhism has now become engaged properly in the world. Now, that's the tradition. As Westerners, we don't even have to take on board what went on in the past in terms of Buddhist history. I think we just have to be engaged in some way. Um, It's kind of your commitment to being in the world if you're not simply going to be a hermit and recluse. And as I say, I think you can enact that retreat mind within the world. And for me, and I only say for me, this is very personal, for me that's the only way it can be enacted. It's the only way it makes sense, the only way it has value is if it's out there, as I've stressed throughout probably the week. Um, my own subjective um, Yeah, well, it's a, bit, it's a bit like the hermit situation <laughs> with the Tibetans. Um, if you're, obviously, you're talking directly about the Tibetans. Well, the Tibetans, of course, don't have such a long history in terms of Buddhism. Buddhism mentioned Tibet relatively late in Buddhist terms. It didn't happen until about the 7th or 8th century. It might be slightly earlier than that, but it's probably most a couple of hundred years. So we're talking about 13 to 1500 years 
of Buddhism in Tibet. Now, one of the things they did in Tibet, and you know, you say there must have been a lot of good karma around, but there was also developing a certain other karma, because they didn't engage with the rest of the world at all. They pursued a policy of isolationism. And in fact, they were kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th century in 1904 when the British invaded them, um, you know, through kind of political interest there. Now, after a couple of invasions, both by the Chinese and the British, um, the 13th Dalai Lama thought this isolation policy was rather ridiculous, but the majority of Tibetans still pursued it. And right up until his death, the 13th Dalai Lama was warning about the, what the policy of isolationism in Tibet would do to the country. And in terms of his kind of um, foresightedness, it's exactly what happened. Because when it came to it, and the Chinese did take over Tibet, everybody said, what Tibet? Come on, we haven't had any dealings with it. Yeah. They weren't players on the world stage at all. They'd had no contact with other cultures and other countries. But if they had been, wouldn't they, did they not I don't know how to respond to that. There's a slight romantic view of Tibet in that. <laughs> if I might put it that way, you know, putting it gently. Um, Tibetan culture itself is, was incredibly inward turning. It didn't look outside. I mean, the most it looked outside of itself was up to about the 11th century when it was having dealings and truck with India and going back and forth across the passes of the Himalaya into India. But after that, it became pretty um, inward-turning. I mean, part of this was to do with the geographical nature of the country itself. I mean, the fact that there were no roads until 1959 in Tibet. You wanted to get from eastern Tibet to central Tibet. It would take you something like six months to get from one side of the country to the other. Now, that may sound a lot, but, you know, Tibet itself is a country the size of Western Europe. Um, with a population of between 6 to 10 million. You know, so it's a pretty vast country with a very sparse population. Coupled with that, there's linguistic problems. People from eastern Tibet can't understand people from other parts of Tibet as well. Um, and the various provinces have such disparate dialects that they can't understand each other. They were pretty well turned in on themselves, and they did not welcome strangers coming in. It was very, very difficult to get into Tibet at all. Um, and you have to cut out all kinds of authorities and seals and stamps to get into Tibet and very, very few people up until really the 40s got into Tibet up to that time. You, you mean so much so in Tibetan studies we can kind of count on the fingers of one hand the people that managed to get into, into Tibet and that really only started in the 18th century with the Jesuit missions. So there's very, very few people. They did not want dealings with the outside world. And it wasn't because they recognised what was going on in the outside world. They didn't know what was going on in the outside world. <laughs> at all. Very little filtered through. <laughs> at all. Um, so let's not have to erode your image of what was going into that. It was just very, very myopic in the way it looked at what was going on. And of course that, in a sense, created karma because the world, in particular, that happened in the 20th century, other countries supported each other 
And when the Chinese took over, there was nobody to support that, because there was no interest in it at all. Alexander David Neal. <laughs> You're putting me on the line here. <laughs> um, again, there's a great romanticisation. I mean, often the books that are written from the 30s to the 50s about Tibet tell us far more about the Western imagination than they tell us about Tibet. <laughs> I mean, it's that, I mean, that book, isn't it? I mean, the one that um, a lot of interest in Tibet stemmed from, which was James Hilton's Lost Horizon, you know, the, the myth of Shangri-La. So Tibet is, is our lost Shangri-La. We'd like it to be this kind of romantic haven. But the reality of what Tibet was actually like is far different. It was a feudal society. It was a theocracy. It was dominated by monks, a lot of whom weren't religious people at all, but were corrupt just like the medieval monasteries in the West. You know, so, it's a good piece of looking at Western psychology to look what to be Tibet means to us often. <laughs> that's not to say, that's not to denigrate the vast repository of learning and teaching and practices that there are and were in Tibet, and from those who were trained under the original system. But, for example, when you have a monastery the size of Drepung Monastery, outside of Lhasa. This is supposedly, purportedly the largest monastery in the world. I mean, one can believe it. Because in its heyday, it had between ten to 15,000 monks in it. You know? In fact, Drepung means the rice heap in Tibetan. Because when you looked at it, it was just like all these white houses on the side of the mountain. Just like this massive heap of rice on the side of the mountain. Now, the bulk of that 10 to 15,000 monks, and it fluctuated through its history, of monks who were there did not want to be there. They were put there as children. And here's just a bit, you know, I don't want to go too much about this, because I'm probably stripping away all your ideas of rosy romantic Tibet. Um, but the reason why there were so many monks in Tibet is because Mongol peoples produced far more male children than female children. And so this is a way of actually sociologically controlling the male population. <laughs> now, when you've got too many of them, put them in monasteries. <laughs> and that became the way, you know, for example, and it still is, in, in the diaspora, the Tibetan diaspora in India, um, when they produce more male children, the youngest of the male children usually get put in the monastery because they can't feed them. They can't support the, the children. And there's also other stuff about farming land and the way the land was tilled in, in, into that as well, which is, wasn't about breaking up the land. So polygamy and polyandry were both practiced into that in various places. You know, marrying one wife, marrying two sons, for example, was quite common and still is in places in Ladakh. Um, so there's all kinds of sociological factors that affect the growth of Buddhism in a country like Tibet too. Um, and the monasteries were huge. They were really huge. So then we could, do you want a quick head count of how many 
thousands of monks were around Lhasa. Lhasa had three major monasteries of the Gurkha tradition, which grew up from 15th century onwards. Drepong had, I say, 10 to 15,000 monks. Um, Thera was the next, had 10 to 12,000 monks. And Gandan had 5 to 7,000 monks. That's an awful lot of monks <laughs> in your community. So, actually, the official figure for Tibet prior to 1959 was that a quarter of the male population was in monasteries. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> basically why it doesn't operate in any deep level is because the psychology that's involved in it is very superficial. It's very kind of surface. Whereas when we talk about visualization in, in the Buddhist, in, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, because that's the one that primarily uses visualization, there's a vast depth of psychology and symbolization that goes behind it, which, in other words, practitioners of those methodologies would understand prior to entering into it. So they would understand something about Buddhist psychology, about you know, the way the mind is perceived. So it's not about simply generating good feelings by visualizing them externally and then incorporating them. It's about you know, seeing the nature of the mind, understanding the nature of the mind, and using the visualization as a tool which is both something which you externalize, internalize, internalize, externalize, internalize. The, the big one, the biggest visualization you get in Tibetan Buddhism is the visualization of the mandala, which is something you might have come across. This diagram of the cosmos, of which you play your part. And this is to see our place within the world, within the cosmos, as being within something like a giant cosmic palace, where everything is wonderful within it. And this is visualized, and it's taken off, so that you see, begin to see the world in this way, as something, and we talked about this very briefly the other day, as something wondrous. So it destroys your familiar apprehensions of the world. Uh, but you do that by primarily visualizing something which is false, which is the world as a cosmic palace. It's not a cosmic palace, obviously, literally. But that's the metaphor for the way that we see it. And it's usually you know, seen as a bounded circle within which is contained all the gods, the goddesses, the bikinis, all the kind of mythological beings that inhabit the world of Buddhism. But these are all ciphers for something else. 
And to really enter into it, you have to understand what the ciphers and the significance of these ciphers mean. Now, I hope you can get the impression it's a lot more complex than simply just externalising something and, you know, and pushing feelings onto it. It's a vastly complex interaction, in other words. And most of the visualisation processes in certain Buddhism are, are about that complex interaction. And so even, for example, the figures of the deities are considered to be mandalas, too. For those of you wondering what a mandala is, um, there's one directly at the bottom of the ramp when you go down outside the meditation hall, which is actually the Kalachaka mandala. Um, again, it's, it's basically, it looks like the ground plan of a palace. And that's what it is. You're supposed to visualise it, however, in 3D. <laughs> Not in the flat version. Um, and you see yourself as the deity seated, you know, uh, seated within the centre of the palace. Now, as the deity, you take on the wisdom and compassion of the deity. So, there's lots and lots of complex stuff involved in the visualisation. This sort of thing we've been doing is very, very simplistic in comparison with the, the complexities that go on in, for example, tantric practice in Tibetan Buddhism. There's a lovely quote, you know, I'll give you this just to finish off on my talk about visualisations and mandalas. There's a wonderful, uh, again, 15th century Tibetan called Romlan Chukirampa, who actually um, described the mandala. He says that the mandala was to take any facet of reality so that any facet of reality and surround it with beauty. So it's taking anything within our world and placing that as the centre and in a sense inscribing a mandala around it. Because the mandala literally means to encircle with beauty itself. So it's trying to recreate the wonder, the beauty at the heart of existence. There's again a poem of Rilke where he says the existence can enchant us and make us want to drop to our knees in wonder. Now I think in our natural attitude that's not what we feel often. When the dukkha gets too much we don't feel that at all. So this is a reawakening. This whole process of visualisation and mandalas and deities and all this complexity which you either take to in Tibetan Buddhism or you don't. You know, um, but it's there to reawaken the wonder. There are other ways of doing it, but Tibetan Buddhism is a very precise, very dynamic way of doing it. It's not saying that at all. He's, uh, and partly what he's trying to do is stop people from becoming Buddhist because of him. <laughs> and that's part of what's engaged in it. You know, he's saying, you know, again, it's a bit, you know, particularly about Buddhism, it's a bit like, the, you know, don't become a Buddhist because you get caught by the romanticism of it all with Tibetan Buddhism and things like that. Actually, sometimes it's wiser to stay within the, your own traditions, the traditions that you know. And as you can see, just in a week like this, they must give me partly in Sanskrit and some Tibetan terms, and you know they can be terribly bewildering and terribly confusing after a while unless you prepare to really seriously enter into understanding what these things mean. I don't mean necessarily learning the languages, but understanding 
Whereas, you know, some of the Western traditions, and I don't necessarily mean always the religious traditions, but some of the Western psychological, philosophical traditions can speak to us directly, because they speak our language immediately. You don't have to go into the derivation of the Sanskrit or Tibetan root to find out why such and such means that. You know, it's there as part of our psychological, intellectual history within the West. And I think just that sometimes you see that people get actually more screwed up by some forms of Buddhism than ever helped by it. Um, so I think it's just being cautious more than anything else. I'm not, it's not saying you can't practice this at all. I think it's just saying be aware if you are opting for this path, why you're doing it, when there are very viable options within your own tradition. Now it might be after an examination of those options within your own tradition, you still opt for Buddhism. But you've looked at what's on offer, if you like, within your own Western tradition. Because otherwise, sometimes it can just be an escapism. You're just fleeing from your own Westernness into you know, the Oriental hothouse flower. <laughs> I followed the Buddhist path for some years and I was able to look back to Christianity and really appreciate that it had within it the kernels that I, I found mm. that satisfied me in Buddhism. It had never been taught to me as a child. Mm. The, the way it was, was taught was um, a very dogmatic, um, quite punitive emphasis on Rose learning, on reciting texts, on, on taking things, on trust, on definitely not being encouraged to question the authority of the priest or the nun. And it, it, it took me many, many years before I could look back and see underlying that uh, power um, demonstration from the, uh, the elders of the church that there really was um, an esoteric genuine desire to commune with oneness within Christianity, but that was just missed completely. And so I have a great guess to Buddhism that it actually opened my, my heart to a teaching that had um, really given me no joy. Mm. I, think that, I think that's right. I mean, often what happens, actually, when... And sometimes I'm guilty of this myself, and actually talking about Christianity, what we do is compare unlike with unlike. Because what we tend to do is put the very psychologically astute form of Buddhism um, with its complexity of its meditation traditions, its psychology, its philosophy and everything else against a very, very crude form of Christianity. Often what passes off in Catholicism is on the basis of the ordinary believer going to church. Now, if we actually had an equal, if we actually placed it on an equal level, we'd be comparing something like the I don't know, the philosophy and psychology of people like Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, and that against Buddhism. Not the kind of teachings of the ordinary teachings of the church that you, may, you might see enacted in Catholic countries at the ordinary village level. That's what we seem to compare with often what's going on with the, 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 the Buddhist structures. So we're often guilty of not comparing like with like. Because Christianity too has its vast complexity, its subtleties, which we don't look into very much. Um, having said that, I pointed the finger at some aspects of Christianity which I think we have taken on board. 
Um, and from a Buddhist point of view, we need looking at. But I do think there's an unfairness in the comparisons, often. Um, and I think it's a great shame, because there is a lot within those traditions that we miss. And within Judaic traditions and other Western traditions as well. Perhaps we ought to finish there, because we've got exactly ten minutes. Tomorrow, Neil. <laughs> Can you wait till tomorrow? Because you'll get a chance tomorrow. I'm just, I'm just uh, thinking we ought to have a bit of quiet and peace to finish the day. <laughs>